Oh my word, we're being interrupted. Oh, oh my word. Teve Kalafeg just walked in the room. Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 52. That's right, 52. For the week ending Monday, April 11th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. And yes, we do get joined or in some cases even interrupted by some of the continent's finest individuals like you heard at the top of today's podcast. My name is Andile Masugu and with me is Tefo Mohapi. It's our birthday homie how are you feeling man dude it's crazy i can't believe it i mean a year is quite a long time you don't actually realize it but it is it's crazy it's been a year we've come a long way a little bit of general knowledge for you guys 52 weeks in a year would you believe they've all flown past and we've lived through every single one of them reported on the absolute most important uh, tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. Thank you so much for sticking with us, for engaging with us, for keeping us on our toes and keeping us loving what we do here. An extra special welcome to you if you're here for the very first time. If you're new to the show, my goodness, it's been a whole year. Where have you been, man? Do yourself a favor and catch up on all our past episodes. They're available for you uh, to listen to at your leisure at African Tech roundup.com of course you could also follow us on twitter and instagram for useful news updates and commentary our handle on both platforms is at african roundup and you can also catch us on facebook find us at facebook.com forward slash african tech roundup if you're in a part of africa that uh, it provides you with free basics that's probably the best place to find us for free <laughs> until you click on the link then facebook says you need to pay Oh, yeah, of course, there's that uh, small matter. But um, don't discourage the people on our birthday, devil. I just don't like free basics. I've been testing it for over a month now. It's crap. It's just rough stuff. But anyway, listen, however you get in touch with us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, keep it coming. Now, before we get on with this week's show, this week's episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible. Now, get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com. Forward slash African Tech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. Now, to celebrate our birthday and our African pride, today's recommendation is the classic book Things Fall Apart by the legendary Chinua Achebe. Did you read this in high school? I've read it a couple of times. Now, it's available as an audiobook. I wish this was available when I was at high school and, and, and uh, revisiting the book uh, some years back. Uh, but it is available now and all for free. Just click through to audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech to get the audiobook now. It would probably still apply today. I mean, it's the center cannot hold South Africa and all that. These days, a lot of classic books like Chinua Achebe's writings uh, tend to read like prophecy almost. Yeah, I mean, I th I th it, it speaks to how they were, th they were thoughtful about what they were writing and what they were observing around the continent. But yeah, right. Stick around till the end of the show because in place of this week's discussion, we're going to take stock of the past year. We're going to go around Africa, as they say, in a couple of minutes and share some highlights from the past year that's been. That's right. We're going to play out some clips of awesome guests that we've had. Uh, including Tebe Kalafeng, who you heard me introing at the top of the uh, of the podcast. He actually stepped into one of our recordings when we were on location uh, some months ago. It was an incredible show. Uh, Tebe Kalafeng, uh, Rebecca Enanchong, Mark Kaigua, and you'll be hearing their uh, voices like that and others a little later on, so do stick around. For now, though, 
it's straight into this week's news. We'll start in Nigeria, where Budget have released uh, some tools to help Nigerians gain easy access to public data. Yeah, they've released two tools. Uh, one is called foivault.com and the other is findacop.ng. FOIVault is a tool that helps track documents requested under the provision of the Freedom of Information Act, as you'd have in other countries like South Africa, and also the responses provided to these requests by organizations and government organizations. Find a cop, I think that's pretty much descriptive. It helps you find a cop if you're in Lagos, and it helps you search for the nearest police station. I take it they don't have 911 out there. I'm assuming. <laughs> also, if you're being mugged or you're in desperate need of a cop, I don't know that the first thing you're going to do is hop onto your laptop or your smartphone and, like, where's the nearest cop? I don't know. Look, I dig foivault.com. I think there's a great use case for that, tracking responses to who denied or who gave access to documents or information requested under an act. I'm not too sure about findacop.ng. I mean, come to think, think about the user experience of being in an emergency. Or rather, let's take it a step back. When do you look for a cop? As you said, you're getting mugged, there's an emergency. The only time you'll click on find a cop is probably maybe if you need documents certified, but that's like once in a while. And even, even then, I mean, if you live in the neighborhood, you already know where your nearest police station is. Tell us, Nigeria, maybe we're reading all this wrong. Maybe this is exactly what you've been waiting for. What, what is ironic, though, especially with FOI Vault, if information is supposed to be publicly available, shouldn't it be easy to access? Why should we need all these elaborate platforms to help us access what the government should be helping us access for nothing? I think governments generally, and I'm going to say it, don't, especially on the continent, don't want us to know. Can you imagine if you could know publicly, like, Governments had uh, platforms where you could know when they gave their friends tenders and all that stuff. I don't think that would be good for them. But on the other side as well is, as you mentioned, I mean, this information should be publicly available. But do people know how to interpret this information in the case of FOI Vault? I mean, is it just one of those nice things? We're going to do this tool and it's nice to have. But do, do the citizens or who is it targeted at? Maybe that's what we should ask. Do the citizens know what to use it for, how to use it, and why it's useful? And, and don't you think there's a political decision around them going with a domain.com as opposed to .ng? I suppose the opportunity for, for interference from local government is vastly reduced with a foreign domain that's hosted elsewhere. Good point you make, and especially they've got these two tools. Findacop.ng, they're happy to go with .ng, which is governed in Nigeria. But with FOI Vault, which is a little bit more sensitive, they're going with .com. Hmm, budget, maybe you need to hop onto a mic and let us know why you did that. Ah, you need to hook us up with some information, given how you're giving it out for free. <laughs> it's true. Okay, well, in the wake of the FBI hacking one of Apple's iPhone devices, WhatsApp announced last week that they would now be offering end-to-end encryption that they're claiming is hack-proof. Hmm. You remember a while back we, we covered, I, I think we led with a story on one of the episodes about hacking teams. And if you recall how hacking teams' tools worked, and especially the suite of security tools for governments, was that it was about on-device uh, install stealth mode, where they would find a way to crook a person, helping governments, spooks and spies, to get that their software, hacking team software, onto a device, onto your laptop, onto your tablet, onto your phone. Why they did that is with spies and national security agencies across the world and on the continent, like we heard with that story with Ethiopia, journalists or people who already know that they're being watched by spooks already have encryption. So 
you're not using WhatsApp before WhatsApp came through. You were probably using Telegram, which was doing end-to-end encryption. You're not just sending plain text emails. You're sending emails encrypted with PGP. So in that case, even still with WhatsApp, it's not correct to say it's hack-proof because once you have something like hacking team suite on your device, they get the content before it gets encrypted because with WhatsApp, I went through some of the documentation. It encrypted as soon as it leaves your device. So the on-device stuff is still unencrypted. So the the assumption is you're safe when your communication is broadcasted. If you're a high 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 profile target, uh, yeah, you're still not safe. It's interesting how security is becoming such a commodity and such a selling point for for companies, uh, for software companies uh, in the social space, as well as the likes of Apple who pride themselves in having such a contained and safe environment in, in which people can operate. Uh, where do you think this is all going in terms of? how we as consumers are going to decide who we as consumers are going to trust information with. I think firstly, why it's become a commodity or become important is because, I mean, the uptake of mobile devices and so many people getting onto the internet, so much data being and information being generated. And where it's going to go, I mean, it's going to become an important feature of everyday life. You're going to have to watch uh, how, like, if every all your information is encrypted, who you host it with, your email service provider. Security, I think information security, although it's still not yet there, will start filtering down to the level of becoming a commodity or becoming a consumer-type app in inverted commas, if I can put it that way, where day-to-day people understand uh, internet security. Given the vulnerability of people's devices, as you described, I mean, WhatsApp is doing its, its very best to protect your data when you communicate within the app. Of course, they can't protect you if you are compromised on the device directly, right? You know, so this trend towards the Internet of Things, doesn't that stand to undermine that whole process? Oh, no, it does. I mean, again, it goes back to the consumer thing. I mean, companies or manufacturers have given people devices and not much education has gone to, into it. Devices have become high risk. You do your banking on them. You do all sorts of things. And you, sometimes you automatically log into websites or apps because you know it's your device. Nobody else is going to have it. But you're not thinking about when you lose it, etc. So there's a lot of education that still needs to go into that. And with the Internet of Things, as you say, I mean, it's going to even be more crucial. There is, and I won't share it, there is a website where CCTV cameras, there's some manufacturers, not some, all, most manufacturers, CCTV cameras that are connected to the internet come with a default password. And consumers, even shop owners or uh, what's this, retail owners, don't change that password and just hook it up, hook it up to the network and hook it up to the internet so that they can monitor their properties, whether they're sitting on holiday, at home, whatever, over the internet. So there's this website that's got all the default passwords of all the CCTV camera manufacturers and it gives you a map of the world and you can just click on a city or country or do a search and it gives you a list of all those feeds that you can watch. Some are in households, which is scary. That's insane. So, yeah, the Internet of Things, I mean, now you're going to be starting to talk about fridges, about uh, Nest. Google's Nest does um, home temperature stuff. So you could start altering people's house temperatures. Look, it's already happening with cars where you can literally tell people's cars what to do. Yeah, true. I mean, it, it, it is scary because it's tools that uh, normal techies would be cautious and would change passwords and information security would be paramount. But you're taking the same tools and in some cases even more powerful, giving them to consumers who are not uh, information security aware. It definitely puts into context the, the real risks. Obviously, the FBI being allowed to hack phones is is obviously not a desirable situation but uh definitely at a sort of entry level for users like us there are far bigger dangers wouldn't you say 
No, definitely. I mean, but the FBI, I think, were it was more posturing them and Apple. I think they already hacked that phone. They were just looking for a way out. Yeah, also, they were going to have to explain how they got that information. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. To Kenya now, where the country's communication authority has published a summary of the ICT sector statistics report for the second quarter of the 2015-2016 financial year. Now, the report covers data points around mobile telephony services, fixed telephony services, internet data, uh, registered domains, broadcasting, tariffs, promotion, special offers, and things like that. Now, some notable stats uh, that stood out for me. Um, is the fact that mobile subscriptions are down slightly by about 100,000 subscriptions, down to 37.7 million subscriptions uh, from 37.8 million uh, recorded last quarter. That's pretty interesting. It could be attributed to legislation, registration of SIM cards being wanted, like you need you needing to register. So if you had multiple SIM cards and you don't bother to go register the other one. It's also attributed, as one uh, journalist mentioned, to SIM box raids where the authority went and raided some SIM boxes and raided illegal SIM cards. Oh, yeah, because we, we covered that last week where... Uh, lots of well, the government is essentially being defrauded by simbox operators who uh, divert international calls, charge them locally, no internet con- uh, interconnect fees uh, charged. In which case, obviously, the local fiscus does not benefit. Uh, there's a lot of redundancy, I'd imagine, in these numbers. I mean, if I think of how many SIM cards I have registered in the last 18 months and how many of them are actually in use, how many of them aren't anywhere I'd even know to look. No, true. I mean. Given also that people nowadays have more than one phone or one div- more than one device that requires a SIM card, yeah, there should be a redundancy in there. No surprises in terms of mobile data, uh, subscriptions being on the rise, up 10.2%. No surprise again with fixed line usage being down. Um, I still have a fixed line. <laughs> I use it for ADSL and the occasional call. I don't imagine too many people on the continent are relying on fixed lines anymore. Nah. This is a trend across the continent, South Africa as well. So, yeah, fixed lines are going down. Again, another trend that shouldn't surprise, especially in Kenya, being the poster child for how mobile money can really become a game changer with M-Pesa and other services being launched there and being very popular there. Mobile money agents have increased significantly. Yep, uh, I think that speaks to how well Kenya has managed to adopt mobile money and use it thanks to Safaricom. So yeah, there no surprises there. But more interesting is SMSs have gone up, text. If you're listening to us today and you're still SMSing, we want to understand why. Yeah, or maybe this speaks to the type of phones people have. I don't know. I'd like I'd love to dig deeper into that. Or maybe they're free. Maybe mobile telcos are like practically just dishing them out now. I don't know. Maybe that's true. But if you're in Kenya, please let us know what the reason could be that SMS usage is up. Give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup. Now, moving on to news from Egypt, where reports are surfacing alleging that the government blocked Facebook's free basic service last December because Facebook refused to let them spy on users. Ooh. I remember us celebrating, saying, yes, they blocked free basics because free basics is against net neutrality. But it's coming out that it wasn't about net neutrality. As it turns out, some sources that don't want to be named are claiming that the reason Egypt wasn't happy with free basics has nothing to do with um, the values we try to espouse here on this show uh, around net neutrality, but more political reasons like uh, help us hunt down people who we don't like as government. And uh, it seems Facebook stood their ground long enough for, for Egypt to change their mind. And the official position, of course, on Egypt's side was Etisalat, which was providing the, the, net, the network providing free basics, was only allowed free basics for two months, although that's not probable. It's 
No, I don't think that's a good read. That's I don't buy that. Well, Etisalat's not speaking, Facebook not speaking, Egyptian government not speaking. It's pretty much hearsay at this point, but it's not difficult to believe, I'd, I'd say. I don't think it's difficult to believe, given Egypt's history, given that it's now like pseudo-military rule. So I, I don't think it's difficult to believe that reason. To South Africa now, where UberX drivers are up in arms, thanks to Uber cutting rates in South Africa by 20%. The rate per kilometer has gone down from 7 rand per kilometer to like 6 rand per kilometer. That's excellent news for the consumer. Drivers can't stand this. Let me read what, what Uber says in the statement. They say this is great news for riders as they'll pay less for their trips, but driver partners will earn more through increased demand. What kind of logic is that? <laughs> Look, I see the spin. It's spin. It's all spin. I see the spin, but I, I see their point as well. Look, I know for a fact, because I've got a mate of mine who's deep into this Uber driver business, and he's got one or two on the road, and he was trying to get a few more. And Uber's definitely not onboarding drivers as quickly and as readily as it used to. I think they've realized that they've, you know, that they've got drivers to take care of, people who need to make a living off the of the platform, and they, they don't want to flood it with brand new drivers. That said, the winter season is coming up. Uh, I think they write about the fact that people have a tendency, at least here in South Africa, to go out far less than they would in summer, uh, in which case they sort of have to incentivize people to, to, to go out and, and perhaps spend on a trip that they wouldn't have before. In which case, it's almost like the Reserve Bank encouraging spending. <laughs> yeah, by dropping interest. All that I buy, the dropping 20%, up to 20% of UberX fees, etc. I buy that, I support that. But they should have stopped right there. They shouldn't try and spin this and say, through more demand, drivers are going to get more money. It's not going to work. Here's a quick timeline of what happens when Uber comes into any city. So you start with like, a few drivers, they come on board because they do pre-marketing. They have a guy or a girl or lady who they'll call an activator. So he'll go or a launcher into a city, goes around, speaks to... This is long before you hear of Uber in the city. Speaks to different people, especially cab drivers and you know people who cab and says, we're planning to come. Would you be interested if you sign up? Obviously, at the beginning, you've got very few cabs. Usually they start with Uber Black and not Uber X, which is the more expensive service. And you're enjoying this as an Uber driver partner because you like a few of you and the demand is just growing and growing and growing and you're busy. Then what happens is you get addicted to that. You put more cabs on, more cabs, more cabs. Then they launch Uber X. Then more and more people come on board because Uber X cars are cheaper than the Uber Blacks. And as it continues, demand grows. And that's why Uber driver partners are angry. I think Uber was created more for your as they, they said initially, if you remember a few years back in their marketing, that it's if you're a student and you want to do like rides and earn extra cash or if you work and you want to earn extra cash of your new car or something like that. The model works for those type of people, but I don't see it working for the type of people you see in every city now where you get people who are doing this as a business for themselves. So the whole professional class of driver is not very well catered for in this model, you think? No, it's not well catered for. Uh, you're going to make a loss. Ish. Yeah, it's rough. And it's hard to imagine that uh, the aspirations that Uber has to scale up and be everywhere and make sure that like your nearest Uber is no more than like half a minute away from you. I can't imagine that model supports uh, someone who wants to send their kids to school on Uber money. No, I don't see it. I mean, you you need, uh, I think some of the drivers or some of the Uber partners didn't think like long ahead enough to see how this might pan out because with demand growing, obviously, people like Uber, we like it. It's cheaper. 
because Uber imposes their rates on you. That's another thing. Like this 20% drop. The rates are imposed on you. The drivers don't determine the rate. Uber determines the rate. On top of that, Uber takes 20% off every trip that the driver does. So this 20% drop is quite quite steep. I mean, word is um, drivers are planning boycotts. Good luck. I mean... <laughs> Trust me, in terms of the popularity of Uber, there is no shortage of people trying to sign up for that service as drivers or as users. I don't imagine they would care one single hoot. Maybe they'd smart a little from the PR embarrassment, but they've had far bigger problems, far bigger fish to fry. I don't imagine that's going to end very well for that. Survive the winter is what I say. <laughs> the rates will come back up. <laughs> Winter's coming, drivers. Winter's coming. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, that's our final news story for this week. Uh, as promised in place of this week's discussion, we're going to take stock of the past year we've had on the show. And uh, as Defa said earlier, we're going to share some highlights from the past year that's been. And we've had quite a diverse bunch of folks join us here on the show, incredible people from uh, all over the continent and even beyond. Our Pan-African network certainly stretches far beyond the shores of this continent. And we've been privileged to be around their ideas, to be inspired by their insights. And we've certainly gleaned quite a few. So what we're going to do is we're going to play out some clips uh, of some of the awesome guests that we've had. And if you're one of those uh, day ones and ride or dies with us, you probably uh, will smile as you reminisce uh, some of the conversations we've had. You, if you're only just joining us, then we're going to school you and where we've been. And I'm sure it's going to be fun for all of us. So I'm going to ask you to go first, therefore, therefore, which guess in your mind sticks out in terms of that was an awesome conversation? Buana Ali, without a doubt. <laughs> Why? That was like a... Five-minute conversation that turned into two, three hours. Yeah, because what happened with Mbwana, like, so he's, he's in Johannesburg for AfriCoin, which is Savannah Fund's event uh, for the fintech industry. And it goes around the continent in different areas, East African. The Southern African one was here in Joburg um, some months ago. And he was here uh, being part of forums and obviously organizing the event and everything. And we caught him after the event and we thought it was just me like, a, you know, a few questions. Oh, Angani was crazy then. Yes, Angani was popping and he invested in Angani. So that's what made it even more interesting. So yeah, so we thought we were going to speak to him for five minutes. And please, no one speaks to Mbwana for five minutes. So here's Mbwana talking about what he reckons is important for offshore VCs to know and understand about Africa if they're going to make a success of investing in our tech ecosystem. Take a listen to this. I think you have to find a local uh, uh, partner who can be on the investment on the investment team, like a partner, not like a not a, not a protege, an actual partner. And you make them let them make the mistakes. Not a token. There has to be a Kenyan in Kenya or Tanzania in Tanzania that is from that country uh, knows the ecosystem and you and this is the most important part like and you have to give them the business card that says they represent you know London fintech fund or Silicon Valley growth fund or you know Cape Town you know Africa Pan-Africa fund whatever the assistant business card it should, it should so everyone knows where money is coming from but they're local and they're hired and they're on the paper and they live in that country or ideally or in the region and this is the, this is the most important bit really really important bit they need to have a pot of money they can deploy um, without the central foreign, or like, you know, foreign influence. And it can be low. And it can be like, say, okay, so say, you know, FinTech uh, fund in New York coming into Nairobi has $50 million to play with in Africa, right? Um, they should probably give the guy in Kenya or gal in Kenya maybe a million to play with 20 startups over two, three years. And, and blank, you can you get full, full disclosure, you know, 
You know, you make, carte blanche. You make mistake, yeah, carte blanche. You make mistakes, it's fine. And then from those 20, let's see what you do. And then when we start trying to write like the $10 million checks, then you have to like report back up to you know, New York and convince them that this company is worth it. Then who's doing this though? Who's doing who? who? Not, many, not many of them are doing it. Maybe Acumen Fund a little bit, but there's always like, oh, Omidia, they, they tend to have centralized investment committees. They have high investment thresholds right when they start. And so because capital requirements are not high, like just get going. So they should use a, the, the opportunity to do a seed fund to, uh, and also the, the one thing I've heard is that they, they just don't, oh, they're scared of Kenya. I'm like, wait a minute, you invest in Kenya and you're scared of Kenya? Like that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, if you're gonna come into Kenya, go into Kenya full, full on. It's a control thing, right? Surely. Yeah, but you know, um, so one of the things that I talk a lot about with the impact investors and other foreign investors is like, you have to, if you're gonna make the ecosystem grow, you also have to get them, make the investors grow locally as well. And so investor training or whatever you call it, we did that with Life Capital. Like that's very, very important. You know, so so not only are you, so you have to train the investors locally to understand the issues, uh, but also let them make mistakes. So there's actually a phrase I heard once in Silicon Valley where like the cost to train a new VC is like $50 million. You know that? You're speaking in terms of the amount of money, the, the amount of money he, or he or she would need to make mistakes to, to the point where they, make, <laughs> they actually make something work. Yep. Yep. So with Savannah Fund, I would say that our first fund has been basically like, what can we learn and do, you know, in Africa? And, uh, and, you know, and then when it, when it gets more serious, you know, then I think there'll be more controls, but you have to make those mistakes. And there will be mistakes. And Ghani's, you know, maybe one of the one of many, right? I mean, there's 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 some that I you don't hear about, right? Many you don't hear about. And it's also it's also stories of investors losing money. Why is it that when founders get screwed over, apparently, then the big story is made? Why about investors losing money? Oh yeah, that's generally because we don't care that someone's got like one less mansion to recline to on the holidays and stuff, I guess. <laughs> But you don't think about the fact that when an investor loses money due to corruption or bad governance, that they may not be follow-on invest, which is Eric's blog, saying that if we start demonizing foreign investors, then they won't come back. That's fair enough. Fair enough. You know, this, yes, these, these people have a lot of money, but they also look for returns. So if they get returns, you get more of that. So it scales, right? So actually, I, I think, you know, yes, these people can afford to, you know, because risk capital is a very crazy beast in investing. It's very small. Right, and it's it's money that can actually be lost, right? So I don't get my investors coming to me saying, "Hey, Angani is a total disaster. What the hell happened?" You know, because and I, I report it, but they go, "Oh, you know." So so actually, when I report my fund to my investors, like, and it's all good news, something's wrong. <laughs> like, what what is he not doing right? We are a risk fund. We're not like save your grandmother's money fund, right? It's expected. And so what I'm hearing from you, like, yes, like. You know, but um, so I'm not going to name the company, but we've had out of 21 investments, one investment that ran out of, ran, the money just disappeared, just ran away, like, just, just gone home. It's not Angani or anything. Angani is still around, the company, it's still, you know, we'll see how it goes, but this is a company that just, like, just, yeah, and that's something that we don't want to happen ever again. Um, but it, uh, thank God it only happened once out of 21 times so far in three years. Um, one is a blast. And then <laughs> this conversation goes on and on and on. By the way, we're going to share it in its entirety. Uh, if you head to our SoundCloud uh, accounts, just search for the African Tech Roundup or you know, go to SoundCloud.com, search for the African Tech Roundup. And um, in our quick chats playlist, you'll find uh, all these conversations listed there and you can catch up on them. Because Mbwana goes on to, to, to share how he's starting a bank. He's not really starting a bank. But yeah, he's, he's just a mess, this guy. <laughs> he's a fun mess. A very interesting guy. But what was one of your interesting ones? 
Um, you know, the standout has to be when we were on location. I can't remember the name of the conference. Forgive me for forgetting. But we were at this conference and we were recording on location. Uh, we were planning to hang out with Mark Kaigua and Rebecca Enon Chong. Then it looked like that wasn't going to happen. We were only going to hang out with Mark because Rebecca was on a panel and then we weren't going to get her. And then... Oh my word! Cameroon in the building! We have Rebecca Enon Chong, ladies and gentlemen, joining this conversation. What a treat we're having today. Guys, the techies are in the building. Anyway, so Rebecca walks in and she joins the conversation. But the, the clip at the top of our podcast today actually comes from this experience. Ladies and gentlemen, a man who needs no introduction here on this continent of Africa, Tebe Kalafeng just walked in on our podcast. It's just such, such an honor to, to have you here. How are you doing, man? I'm very good. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me here. Oh, thank you for hijacking me. <laughs> <laughs> this is proper. When you think of how far you came and bringing the Nike brand to Africa in such a big way, and now sort of handling more important brands like Brand Africa, what comes to mind when you think of your journey from Nike to managing, say, Brand Ghana? Well, I mean, uh, uh, everything that we do as individuals uh, contributes to the greater brand Africa. So, uh, so along the ways, whether I was building uh, Colgate, Palmolive uh, in New York or in South Africa, uh, whether working for Sun International, whether working for Nike, all those are contributing to the country brand and collectively to the continental brand. And that's why you know I love how SAB describes themselves. I hope they don't get sold to Inbev, by the way, uh, because you know they always say uh, on their advertising, it is the essay that makes us who we are. So it is our roots which give us our identity. So working with individual brands along the way and ultimately different countries. I just figured it's probably time to try and bring it all together. So it's really part of a journey um, more than as a different step in direction. Listen, you're on easily the biggest tech podcast across Africa. You've got a new breed of Africans listening to you right now. What do you have to say to people young and old who are crazy about this continent, crazy about taking it where it should be at the forefront of innovation and digital excellence? What do you have to say to people like that who are listening to us right now? Well, I'm saying that they must remember that they are the, they are the future because 70% of the continent is under the age of 30. Uh, so that means that the people we're talking to are the people who are going to run the continent uh, in the next few years. So the thing we have to, have to remember is that our continent has got a future. Everybody else has got a past and we have to take control of that future today. Boom. Drops mic and walks away. <laughs> Moon walks away. Moon walks away. So in the end, uh, the podcast ended up having three incredible African minds, uh, movers and shakers, in one episode. We had Rebecca Enonchong, Mark Kaigua, who we just listened to. But yeah, there were some really cool highlights from that conversation. Take a listen to some of them. When I look at the top five most visited websites in the world, pick SimilarWeb, pick Alexa, pick whoever you want. Those sites, the digital passport to them is an email address. Now, if you look at their acquisitions, a number of their acquisitions have all been platforms where the passport is a mobile phone number, especially for the emerging markets. Right? So this is why I think it's 29% of all internet traffic, if I'm not mistaken, on Econet in Zimbabwe is exclusively WhatsApp. It's the reason why I think the most popular plan in India right now is a dollar, all-you-can-eat WhatsApp plan as well, right? You know, the, that as a platform is i mean the potential is tremendous and i you know i was trying to bring some of that thinking and some of that conversation here so what i mentioned was because we're in south africa i mentioned clip central i said hey you know for for us one of the things that 
you know we're sitting in Nairobi we're looking at the whole continent and I've ne- and, and there's people trying to solve what is a three-way problem and I feel like I don't you know you guys will tell me how current this is whether it's still in place but you have Gareth Cliff who broadcasts online radio on cliffcentral.com and then you have WeChat who's coming as a social media partner now in their attempt to compete with WhatsApp they're coming and saying hey we're going to sort you on social and sure enough you look at the numbers 110,000 um uh, fans on on WeChat, uh, you have forty six thousand on Twitter. You have you have forty four thousand on Twitter, fifty six thousand on Facebook. So he's double any other social network, right? And then on top of that, you look at MTN and MTN come in and say, hey, well people vote not just with their attention and their time to listen, they vote with their bundles. Ninety six percent of Africa's prepaid, so we're gonna zero rate you. So now you have the social media element, you have the telco zero rating it. And now you have the content. And that's a trifecta I've never seen anywhere else. I talked about it in a chapter that I wrote for a book that just came out on China and Africa. And, and, and I use a bunch of other examples. But interestingly, that to me is, is, is one of the best examples. You've solved it three different ways. Now look, China's at the table. MTN, who we've just been speaking about, is at the table. But so is the content creator who's now learning. Can podcast sell? Can I sit in front of a brand and basically charge three times what a radio station is going to charge because I have such deep audience data and analytics better than the broadcasters, right? More measurable, less equipment, and, I, and I'm engaging them twice as much as, any, as the nearest um, traditional outfit. So, I mean, to me, that's what brought me here. So I, 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 a couple uh, weeks ago, I said, some of the same people at the largest gathering of, um, of public broadcasters, you know, all due respect, this crowd is not one that's easily moved because they're like, hey, we're the public broadcaster. We're not going anywhere. Government funds us. We could lose money year and year and year. And I'm not saying that, that all of them are like this, but there are some. Uh, but we're, and we're around, right? And I was just trying to rile them up to like just tell them, you know, you've got to adapt to this age. And some of them, I won't lie, they were obstinate. Like aside, they're like, great presentation, young, young man. You've got a lot of energy. Not going to happen for all these reasons. I'm like, you just don't see it because it's a leadership question, right? Around technology. But I wanted to ask Rebecca just one thing, if she if she's willing to oblige us on MTN Nigeria. Your thoughts? Oh, very direct question. Do you think they'll pay today? Um, I don't. I don't think they're going to pay today, but I think they will pay. Um, I'm not sure that they'll pay the full amount, but they will have to pay dearly. Uh, uh, Rebecca took her glasses off to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't. I can't think with my glasses on. You know, I have to take them off to really think about what I'm going to say. But the the, the fact is, is that I I actually think that the MTN the fine is valid. I think that it sends a message to everyone that you have to le- level the playing field. And when you're leveling the playing field, it means everybody has to follow the rules. It's just that MTN, not only in Nigeria, but in many countries in which they do business, has never had to play by the rules. And this is a reminder that in Nigeria, it's not business as usual. And maybe other investors will be awakened to the, the, the concept that, hey, wait a minute, there are rules that we have to adhere to. And other investors, I think, will appreciate the fact that, you know, the, 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 this is what they said the rules were back in 2011. And my goodness, they've enforced their own rules. And that's good for all of us. Wow, that, that was a dope episode, actually. It was quite dope to even get all three of them unexpectedly. Because like you said, initially, we were only going to chat to Mark Aigua. I mean, there's a lot of work we obviously put into the show to try and make sure that we, uh, you know, we adequately represent all the major regions 
of the continent and make sure we have people that you'll enjoy listening to and learning from. But from time to time, magic just happens. We meet, we bump into people and it just makes the show that much more awesome. And I look forward to another year of those kind of things happening. No, definitely. I mean, that's what the show is all about. It's about the African tech community, the conversations that need to be had, the hard conversations that need to be had on the African tech ecosystem. And I love that a lot of it's organic. It's not forced. It's, we're not speaking to heads of brand here trying to push their product or startup founders desperate for traction, you know, that kind of thing. Because of the network that we're beginning to develop and the community that's beginning to form around the show, beginning to really be at the pulse of what matters to this tech community. And I love that. And speaking of that tech community, one of the other highlights of our year has to be the annual roundup, the annual quote-unquote tech roundup because uh, it was a small gathering in Johannesburg to take stock of the year that was in terms of startups, in terms of enterprise, and in terms of gadgets. For those who who didn't follow, if it's the first time you follow us or listen to this, it was a great gathering. I mean, for the enterprise tech, which which was telecoms and fintech, we had Dominique Collet-Antolique, who is a great mind in fintech, and shared a few great insights, which we'll play shortly. We also had Brandon Doyle from Convergence Partners, a guy who's we give you the internet from Europe, CECOM. They invest in that. So we had him there. We had Mitch Atagana. We had uh, Andrew Taylor from Lexnov talking about legalities around tech startups. And we also had, uh, I think, Craig Wilson, who's now editor of Stuff Magazine. Oh, yes. He's getting posh. And ah, don't forget, Musa Kalenga of Facebook. Uh, we had Kodja Bafo of Project Fable. And Kali Lunga. I mean, he's quite an energetic guy. And last but not least, we also had Jade Brennan. We did. And so uh, revisit some of the episodes. We shared a lot of the content from that uh, particular event over the festive break, and you can go and listen to it in, in, in its entirety. But one conversation stands out for me, and it was one facilitated by you, therefore, in the enterprise panel that featured Brandon Doyle and Dominique. I'll never forget uh, some of her impassioned insights around how companies need to come to the party in terms of supporting and backing disruptive technologies and startups. What I loved about that was how she was pulling in the fintech and the telco about how companies are becoming more, or the companies that are going to win are the ones that are consumer-focused, even in banking. So if we look at it, there's $20 billion of investment capital that is going into the fintech industry. So we've identified over 1,500 fintech startups that are unbundling every part of the financial services value chain. So they're coming in and attacking pieces of it, and they are taking advantage of the infrastructure that exists there. But the point is, is it's something that you can't stop. And the point is, is that they wouldn't be getting traction if there wasn't a need in the market. So the point is, is that I understand that the banks moan and the banks, you know, cry and they say, well, we've invested in the regulatory expertise and we've, we've invested in the branch infrastructure and the ATM infrastructure. And it's not fair that someone can come in and ride on top of that. But the point is, is that my belief is that they've benefited from superior returns over the years. And those superior returns have come at the expense of consumers. Wow. That's and, quite an admission. <laughs> but it's true, <laughs> sure. right? Um, and I come out of a business that basically launched a massive attack on the bank. So that's my own personal belief. Um, And I think it is the age of consumers. I mean, what technology is allowing us to do is to develop next generation financial services systems at a cost point that is mind boggling. And the point is, is that the current banks in particular are not geared to deal with it. I mean, just to give you some stats, I mean, the things that frighten me a little bit, like, I mean, just, just to give you a bit of context, I mean, the business that we launched, we were able to deliver an entire next generation banking system for less than $10 million. This is time, right? Yeah. 
And we were able to do what, what one of the big banks in South Africa weren't able to do with 2 billion rand. Right, so the orders of magnitude are just very different. And then I see things globally like RBS and Lloyds Bank announces here that they're spending a billion pounds on their digital innovation. And I'm thinking, well, what are you going to do with a billion pounds? Because you've got guys that are out there that are able to rapidly deploy systems for less than $10 million that are going to eat your lunch. And you're just never going to recoup that. And the point is, is that how they're going to get their returns on their one billion pounds, I can tell you where they're going to recoup it is from consumers. And consumers at some point are going to say no more. And they're going to gravitate towards players who are offering them a better service and are doing it at a price point that makes sense. Well, there you go. Way to go, Dominique. Now, our West African brother, Emeka Okoye, visited our office some months ago. Now, he was fun to chat with. He was. I mean, how can we talk tech in Africa and not talk about Nigeria? I'm telling you, and this dude is really big on data and its role in defining uh, the tech landscape of the next five years. Yep, uh, he's big on data, he's big on the semantic web, he's a great mind, take a listen. How big is this Netflix story in Nigeria at the moment? Well, it's huge, you know, people are excited about it, you know, so much DSTV monopoly, you know, in quotes, I mean, uh, yeah, not much of a players, uh, not many players have come in and have beaten them to their game. We had high TV, but unfortunately, a crash, I guess they didn't get their business uh, 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 all right, but now Netflix. The excitement about it is that you know people online, especially social media, you know, are talking much about it. But the truth of the matter is that it's not going to be a niche service. Um, one of the things Iroko uh, has mentioned about is you know the subscriber base in Nigeria, and he pointed it out in his post. I mean, his post was you know he explained it well. This is Jason, actually, because we were actually talking about him when you walked in. Uh, he, he, uh, he's on some, well, we're, we're, we're a totally different business model. Netflix does, you know, Showmax on one side says, uh, you know, DSTV are saying, well, these guys are going to help us grow the market. Iroka TV is saying these guys have nothing to do with what we do. We've got a mobile-only focus. We're making uh, local content for, for diasporans and locals and, and uh, you know, a local audience that is mobile mostly. Uh, what, what do you think? I, I think Iroko is right. Uh, there's no competition. Um, first of all, Netflix, it will be hard for Netflix to you know, get the local content. I think Iroko has covered that area. So for them, they might want to create new content. But the question is, when they are creating new content, which audience are they looking at? Is it the international audience or the African audience? You know, that's, you know, this, this is where, you know, that's a business question. Um, we know they, they did well with the Beast of No Nation. Uh, it's written by uh, uh, Iwala. Iwala is a Nigerian. Production was done in West Africa. We, you know, they used a lot of Ghanaian actors and actresses. and you know, uh, So that looked almost like a local production, just like Slumdog uh, Millionaire, which was a British crew with an Indian uh, production. You know, so um, whether that can work in Africa, I doubt. I mean, and this is the Id- the Idris Elba movie where he plays a a, um, a, a, a a warlord. Warlord, yes. You know, so um, the thing is, this is that Iroko has covered you know a lot of the content side. Is this through you, you, uh, through licensing, or you, you mean in terms of uh, actually starting to make their own content? No, through licensing, but they have plans to make their own content. You know, uh, I'm I am sure they've started some production, but uh, you know, I'm not 
uh, in Iroko. So, um, so they have the Nigerian content of Nollywood. Nollywood is the third biggest uh, uh, movie uh, franchise in the world. So they have that, and they have the diaspora. You know, so it's not so hard, you know, for you to figure out that you know Netflix to be hard for Netflix to, you know, uh, knock them off. You know that uh, the only thing is that Netflix might want to now show inter- uh, um, uh, Western content in Africa, but the problem with that is that you know broadband is expensive, subscriber base is low, very low. They also the market of uh, DSTV who are offline, so. It's not for me. Uh, I don't think Netflix will dent anybody's market. And on the streets, what are the Nigerians talking about? Are they? Uh, we see obviously the non-average Africans talking about this, making a trend on Twitter and <laughs> all over social. But we know that's not the average consumer on our continent. What are the streets saying? No, well, you, you know those talking on uh, online are not the average. You know they don't even represent you know the whole demographics. So. Uh, we have to take their comments uh, with a pinch of salt. Uh, the truth of the matter is that DSTV, for instance, which is the biggest uh, on the continent, serve you know the top to middle class, and we've had this discussion about the low middle class in Africa. There has been the debate since the Nestle debacle, you know. So we, we for now, we are not even sure whether we have up to 50 million uh, Africans in the middle class. Um, I could tell you that DSTV in Nigeria is not up to 2 million. There are more DSTV uh, uh, machines here in South Africa than even uh, Nigeria with 170 million. So we have a very low uh, middle class in in, Afri- in Nigeria. So in a real sense, when when the Western world talks about a middle class earning so many so many dollars a day, living on so much a day, that middle class doesn't quite exist in the sort of numbers that Netflix might wish it did. No, it doesn't. Uh, broadband is expensive. I mean, you know, look at, you know, in Nigeria, a lot of, uh, for instance, in Nigeria, a lot of uh, the MNOs are offering free uh, data, you know, based on, you know, your recharge, you know. So it's not so much about people wanting to pay for data, but, you know, uh, uh, the uh, most of the data is coming uh, well let me say a lot of the data is coming from re- recharge now one thing again is that um, one of the attractions to DSTV one of the major attractions of DSTV is sports you know um, you, you can go back to the licensing why the Nigerian backlist premiership license is very expensive it was when the high TV uh, the local uh, 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 digital uh, station acquired the license, beat DSTV some years back. And, you know, they hinged their business model on that spot. I guess that's one of the reasons why they went down. So they had to overbid from DSTV, making it too high for DSTV to pay, so that they can have something to leverage on the market. Sports is a big deal, you know, very big. And a lot of us pay DSTV because of sports. So Netflix, for instance, if they don't have anything for live sports, then their opportunities is limited. So sports is really big in Africa, especially in Nigeria. And if you remove sports from DSTV, I can tell you DSTV subscription will go go down. Also from West Africa, well, not at all, actually, but... Not at all. He's from Poland, but yeah, we call him Chinedu. 
Chinedu, Chinedu again um, stands out because we recorded this episode in his hotel room. Am I allowed to tell people that? Yeah, 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 yeah. sure, sure, sure. No, no, we really had to catch up with him because he, he, he was in town for a hotel conference and yeah it was a really tight schedule for him and us and so we, we had no choice but to record the, the entire episode in his room and you know i was very kind of him but yeah it was really fun actually catching up with them we poked a lot of fun uh, at him and mark essien because of the rivalry you know the rivalry between jovago ng and uh which which of course mark used to be in charge of as well as um, hotels ng which mark is still at the helm of and so yeah it was quite interesting meeting the man uh, who's made Nigeria his home and since left Javago to start what sounds like a competing uh, service. But listen to Amarik Mzisklowski. I never... Oh, you're butchering it. Zmivzlowski. Mzisklowski. Chinedu. <laughs> Zmivzlowski. But Chinedu will do, I think. All right, so Chinedu. Take a listen to Chinedu pre-leaving Javago. I'd like to congratulate Hotels.ng for the capital raise they have um, achieved. But please do remember that raising actually is not the hardest part when you run a startup. Scaling up and execution, this is this is the really hard part. Um, it wasn't a surprise for Jovago. We knew that this is going to happen sooner or later, especially after th- th- that rapid growth that Jovago has uh, shown to the market in the last two years and the backup that we have and we are happy to have from MTN. Rocket Internet and the Millicom. We knew that there will be other investors also looking at these markets that will try to back up smaller local players to also tap and, and grab a part of the market that we're also uh, working on. Well, so we haven't heard much from him lately and in terms of what he's doing next and in terms of his next moves, but he's definitely a highlight, not only because he's a good sport, but because he's very expressive and uh, his engagement in the community on social and even interpersonally, like uh, behind the scenes is, is quite something we appreciate. So yeah, there you go, Chinedu. Uh, you made our list today. Yep. Now we move to, to your home country. My guy, I mean, uh, Z is definitely the last letter of the alphabet. Uh, last but not least, I assure you. Yeah, Zimbabwe, I mean, we, we, we had a chat with uh, two great startup founders, Vusin Debele and Tawanda, who we met in Joburg, yeah? We did meet them in Joburg. Vusin Debele is the founder of a payments platform called PayNow. Um, the, think of it as the Zimbabwean version of PayPal. And uh, Tawanda is the co-founder of a company called Bitfinance, which is essentially a Bitcoin exchange. Uh, They're aiming to be the first Bitcoin exchange in Zimbabwe. Uh, Both of them had very interesting insights coming from very different directions. Wusi, of course, very much being a partner to incumbents uh, in the service they provide. And Tawanda and his company providing more of what I consider a disruptive option. Uh, relative to that. Uh, both of them have interesting things to say. We'll start with Tawanda, who uh, reckons that Zimbabwe is the best use case for Bitcoin in the world. Take a listen to this. The, the absence of a, of a national currency is an advantage. And so I, I see Zimbabwe as the best use case for Bitcoin in the world for, for that reason. Also, uh, looking at the fact that we've, you can use multiple currency as legal tender, I also see Zimbabwe as, as having the best... Uh, uh, exchange control regulations in the world. Wow, that's quite a statement. I'm hoping as, as a Zimbo myself uh, that you guys take this one all the way to the bank because um, in many respects, I think uh, Zimbabwe is the best example out there for how things technically should run but never do. <laughs> yeah. 
before you go, give me a sense of what the tech scene is like. You've spent um, an afternoon, or at least a full day at AfriCoin Johannesburg, um, mixing and mingling with some of your contemporaries from across the continent. Based on what you've seen, I know you're not here a lot of the time, but what is your sense as developers, as, as startup founders, owners of platforms, as uh, uh, integration specialists? Tell me what differences sort of stand out for you between the scene you've observed here in Zimbabwe. We'll see. I'm impressed actually by the contribution of established players. So, for instance, you will probably find that many uh, tech-oriented conferences in Zim will have um, a lot of um, individual developers. You know, it'll really be exclusively people from the the tech and dev community. Whereas here, we've had you know a number of banks here, financial institutions, all sorts of established organisations that are actually here, and I think that contributes to the quality of discussion that we have and and the knowledge that that might influence something in these uh, in these big organizations which really wield the power um, so I do think that it would be good if um, we're able to get the same sort of engagement from um, uh, big industry I suppose the um, the, the in, in Zim to make sure that uh, you know our our developers are listening to their their problems and and the other way around that was great. And if it was the first time you're listening now, you've got a good idea what we're all about. And look out for more episodes coming from us and also our annual roundup, which should be outside Joburg this year. We're definitely planning to travel to a major African hub outside of South Africa for that event, which is planned for November this year. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. We obviously couldn't play out every single highlight we experienced this year. We do have 52 episodes after all. Uh, there's so many people who've made it. Uh, such a pleasure to do this show by featuring on the show comments that you've contributed through sending us audio notes, through contributing on social media, uh, to our incredible team here at the African Tech Roundup. Yeah, and absolutely a huge big thank you to you, the listener. That's made it a joy to go out to the entire world every single Monday morning at 9 a.m. So a big thank you to you. Before we go, once again, today's episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible. Now, they're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. What we're doing today is celebrating our birthday and our African pride by recommending a classic novel by Chinua Achebe called Things Fall Apart. Now, if you haven't read this book, you need to get to know Okonoo. He's the greatest warrior alive and one of the most powerful men of his clan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's determined not to be like his father. He refuses to show weakness to anyone, even if the only way he can master his feelings is with his fists. It's definitely worth a read, folks. And you can get Things Fall Apart or any other audiobook of your choice for free right now at audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. That's audibletrial.com forward slash Let's all become like Okono and become great warriors. But you guys make the show. It's been wonderful being on the show. And I hope you guys still hang around for another 52 more episodes. We'd love for that to happen. And tell your friends, share this episode with someone you care about. Yeah. In the meantime, be sure to listen to us again next week. The next episode drops at 9 a.m. Central African time on africantechroundup.com. Otherwise, for now, it's cheers from me, Andilia Masugu. And for more happy. Take it easy. Peace.